Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. You're going to see some language in this passage of Isaiah that, that should sound familiar as we arrive at, uh, as, we, as we continue rather in, in chapter 43, you'll hear a motif that we first saw introduced in chapter 42, continue. And this is about the spiritual imperceptiveness of his people. He it conveys it to them being blind, to them being deaf. It means that they are spiritually unable to see unable to see what God's done and what God is doing. They're unable to hear God when he speaks. They're, they're slow to listen to what God is telling them. And this is, these, these are prophecies that were uh, in, in the same genre that, to which Jesus would refer and describe the Pharisees, the hard-hearted Pharisees, as a fulfillment of this. Now, when we were continuing in Isaiah and we saw chapter 6, this was something God told Isaiah would be the case for his ministry right there from his initial calling. Okay, these people are going to be hard-hearted. They're going to see, but never understand. They're going to hear, but they're never going to, to, you know, they're never going to be able to really perceive what you're saying, but you're being sent anyway. And much of that is because you and I today are likewise the audience for Isaiah. In fact, much of Isaiah, as we've seen, is prophetic and apocalyptic, especially in chapters 1 through 39, chapter 40 to the end, man, it gets more and more about Jesus. Uh, but we are the beneficiaries of Isaiah's prophetic ministry, uh, more so than some of the original recipients, really, because we can see how God fulfilled exactly what he said he would do in Isaiah's prophecies. Here's Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 8. Bring out a people who are blind yet have eyes and are deaf, yet have ears. Katie, okay, you remember chapter 6? All the nations are gathered together, and the peoples are assembled. Who among them can declare this and tell us the former things? Let them present their witnesses to vindicate themselves so that they may hear and say it is true. All right, so in this portion, uh, something similar to what we saw in Paul's writing style. We saw this uh, at times in in First uh, and Second Corinthians where it would kind of be this courtroom-esque language, kind of like uh, we're, uh, there's, there, there's, a, there's a judge and, and now there are two parties and let one party make his case. And, and that, that, that's sort of what Isaiah was laying out, you know, really uh, uh, almost 800 years before, before Paul did it. So Paul may have been emulating this writing style under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and writing his epistles. So we have this stage in which all the nations are together, and they're all going to bear witness. Let them present their witnesses to vindicate themselves. All right now, what's striking about this, and what I think is transcovenantal, if you will, about this, meaning it, it applies in both covenants, it's happening today. People are trying to vindicate themselves, make a defense for their own actions based on their own virtue, their own moral goodness. Let them present witnesses to vindicate themselves. What's the problem with this? We're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We'll have nothing to say in such a courtroom before such a judge as God. You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. And my servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me, and there, were, there, there will be none after me. This, this verse is huge. Right? You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. All these nations are brought together in this courtroom setting. 
What was originally promised through Abraham was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the nation that would be created miraculously by God through Abraham and his wife, Sarah, even though they were well along in years. And this was all just so that God would get the credit, so that God would get the credit. And now today, because of Jesus, Gentiles can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We were saved in the Old Testament, according to the book of Romans in chapter 10, by really acts of righteousness, adherence to the law of Moses, because your adherence to the law of Moses proved that you believed in the Messiah who would one day come. And now today, salvation is near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. With your, it's, it's with your mouth that you believe. It's with your heart. It's with your mouth that you confess. With your heart that you believe and are saved. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9 says you will be saved. And so this is how salvation works in the New Testament. But in Romans chapter 10, we see that salvation in the Old Testament was by adherence to the law of, of Moses. Now, all these nations in this prophetic courtroom, proverbial courtroom setting that's being painted in the mind by Isaiah's word picture of Isaiah 43, they are all witnesses to the Lord's declaration. My servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. I believe this is a prophecy about Jesus, that he is the chosen servant here. The, the case could be made that this is speaking about Israel so that all the nations would bear witness to Israel as his witness. But even if that's the case, what would Israel bring about but Jesus? And so I think that you're going to see uh, a bit of a foreshadowing uh, in this text. This, this could be really argued as, as one of the servant songs about Jesus. Uh, when we get deeper and deeper into Isaiah, these become more and more prevalent, more and more obvious and clear. Like There's no denying chapters 52 and 53, are, are, are parts of 52 and 53 are, are the servant songs, the suffering servant songs. They're, the, they're these descriptors of the, the chosen servant of God who is suffering by his wounds, we are healed. That's to come. Uh, that's to come in about nine chapters. But my interpretation of this is that this, this chosen servant in this case is Jesus, uh, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. All right, Jesus would make these I am statements. There are seven of them as recorded in the Gospel of John. That was our very first series uh, how God lights our darkness, if you want more of that from, from JCM. No God was formed before me. There's only one true God. This does not make me an atheist. That's the, the funny accusation that even persists, persists in, in modern atheistic culture. That was the same accusation that was made by the Roman Empire against believers uh, in the year 64 and around that. Every, every emperor from... Augustus, Tiberius, and Claudius, Vespasian, Domitian, all the way up and all the way up until Constantine. I mean, they they persecuted Christians by labeling them atheists, not because they disbelieved in any god at all. They weren't atheists. The prefix "a" negating theist, as if you say that there is no god. They are rather, in this respect, monotheists. And within that one god, we see three persons: the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are all evident in Scripture. And there has never been a God before God. And as he says here, rightly, about himself in his own text, there will be none after me. This, this has to bring our minds heavenward, to think on the heavenly future wherein there will be no 
more sin. There will never be again another angelic rebellion. And we, having lived and been atoned for in our sin by Christ, will dwell with him forever. And all of the gods, with a lowercase g, of this present age will be nowhere to be found because they never were. There were no gods before God. There will be no gods after him. I, I am the Lord. And the original Hebrew too, it just emphasizes this, this repetition that I, I am the Lord. It's pretty cool how even on a fine, I know that I'm, I'm looking at, a, at an M dash and, and making a big deal out of it, but, but God put it in his word in the original Hebrew and did so for a reason. It is for emphasis and not because he didn't express it rightly the first time, but because he knew that the recipients of his divine message and even the vessel through whom he was speaking were fallible. And so he is emphatic. I, I am the Lord. By the time that you're, you're watching this, there's already going to be a new King of England uh, who is syncretistic. He's very, uh, as Dr. Al Mohler put it, elastic in his faith. And uh, I think I haven't yet seen the coronation. Um, the only reason I'm curious is to see how faithful they are to the, the origins of uh, the wording of the ceremony dating back to the, the coronation of David, the coronation of, of Solomon, uh, that he is the defender of the faith. All right. Uh, I, from what I understand, he's supposed to be coronated as the defender of faith or faiths or something like that. Uh, here's, here's the thing. Uh, don't correct God. Okay. I, I am the Lord besides me. There is no savior. Uh, I was talking to the students about this. When you're on the dock, and your friend is drowning. Don't offer them numerous options, only one of which could save them from drowning. <laughs> okay, don't, don't offer them an anvil because you know it's going to make them sink straight down. No, it's actually evil of you to toss an anvil onto someone who's drowning. Okay, that's, that's evil. But Jesse, I'm trying to be open-minded. I'm trying to be tolerant. Jesse, you're so closed-minded about this. Yeah, I'm really closed-minded about the fact that only a life-saving device could save someone's life and everything else is going to make them sink. Okay? Don't offer them your hammer collection. Don't toss a baby at them. Don't give them an anvil. Don't offer them your car. Offer them the one thing that saves them. Okay? Christian? You're not going to lead more people to God by forsaking the gospel, corrupting it, compromising it, giving somehow equal salvific credence to pagan faith systems. This does not lead more people to Christ. It saves no one. Okay? You, you don't actually broaden your evangelistic reach by offering alternatives to the one Savior. And you don't lead more people to Christ and reach more people by forsaking what God has said about himself. Besides me, there is no savior. It's John 14, 6 basic. We pray it every week when we share the gospel at the Redemption Church. Okay, every one of my sermons includes this. God is the one who by his own authority and in his 
own word, emphatically, complete with repetition, has made the exclusive claim to the truth. No God was formed before me. There will be none after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. God said this about himself, so Christian, do not correct God. Do not think yourself enlightened when you try to broaden the gospel and open the net so wide that you end up suggesting that there are other faiths that can save people, that there are multiple paths to God, that every religion in the world leads to the same place. Because when you do this, you lie, you teach falsely, and God is going to take you out for that. Do not correct God. Do not correct God. God said this about himself. Let God's word speak and get out of the way. Verse 12, I alone declared, saved, and proclaimed, and not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses. Man, isn't this cool? This is another one of those verses that easily applies in both covenants, both the, the, coven, the old covenant of the original recipients and then even today. Go figure. It's almost like God is unchanging or something like that. You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. And I am God. <laughs> Man, this text is magnificent and so, so clear. It's so undeniable. Anyone who tries to contradict this is a false teacher. So if you, I mean, with all the intentions in the world of trying to lead more people to heaven, come to the realization that you've actually been pointing people to hell. Instead of offering people a life-saving device, you've been tossing anvils at them. Would you just please repent right away? Repent right away of syncretism, of polytheism. Okay, repent right away. Repent of deism, for that matter. Okay, because even deism, the belief that there's a creator God, like even deism doesn't cut it. You've got to be specific. There's no God before the one true God. There will be no gods after the one true God. This is God's word, God talking about himself. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no savior, okay? Sorry, Oprah. Sorry, Siddhartha. Sorry, Buddha. Sorry, everyone who teaches anything other than the one gospel, the one true God. There's no Savior. Which, by default, let's do some basic elimination here, means that if you're preaching Jesus, you're preaching the Savior. If you're preaching anything else, you're directing people to hell. Because there is only one Savior, which by process of the simplest act of elimination means that everything else leads people to hell. And I'm not being intellectually arrogant when I say this. I feel like this is like first grade reading comprehension basic. It's so clear. It's so obvious. He's not even using metaphor. He's just using direct language to drive this home. He alone declared this. He alone saves his people. He alone proclaimed it. There's not some foreign God among you. 
So you are my witnesses. Remember, this brings us back to the, the, the courtroom setting. All right, all the nations are gathered together and all the peoples are assembled. Let them present their witnesses. And God says to the nations, you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. So that evokes what came before. You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. And I am God. Also, from today on, I am he alone and none can rescue from my power. I act and who can reverse it? It's just a phenomenal text, isn't it? It's just so brilliantly, incredibly clear. Here in verse 12, he's speaking about how he alone is the one, uh, he alone is the one who saves. He said this in verse 11 as well, besides me, there is no savior. And then verse 13 also heads up, what does that mean? That also means that he alone has the right to pour out wrath upon sin. From today on, I am he alone, and none can rescue you from my power. Okay, meaning when God does what the Bible says he's going to do, there will be no escape from it. I act, and who can reverse it? No one can. So Christian, if you've been tempted to try to water down the gospel, and if you've been tempted to try to acquiesce to Sennacherib, basically, right? To, or Sennacherib, to the teachings of this earth. If you've been inclined unto syncretism because you feel like you might lead more people to Christ, it actually means you're going to lead zero people to salvation. Okay, offer only the one true God because there's no other Savior but Him. Amen? I'll see you tomorrow.